In his classic book for pastors, Puritan preacher Richard Baxter, he writes this statement, God never saved any man for being a preacher. That means that not everyone in the ministry, not everyone who climbs into a pulpit will necessarily ascend into paradise. The pastor comes to God the same as the people. He gets no special exemption just because he's the pastor. He has to humble his heart, repent of his sin, submit his life to Jesus as Lord, and trust Christ for his righteousness. God doesn't offer special exemptions for clergy. In fact, Richard Baxter had some strong words for the pastors of his day, a message I think needs to be repeated today. He writes this, The great and lamentable sin of ministers of the gospel is that they are not fully devoted to God. They do not give themselves up wholly to the blessed work they have undertaken to do. Is it not true that flesh-pleasing and self-seeking interests make us walk unfaithfully? Is it not true that we serve God too cheaply? Do we not do so in the most applauded ways? Do we not preach the realities which are above while we mind the things which are below? So what remains to be said, brethren, but to cry that we all are guilty of too many of the aforementioned sins, do we not need to humble ourselves in lamentation for our miscarriages before the Lord? I have no doubt the troublesome condition of the church today is largely due to the meager spirituality and the shallow teaching of its ministers. As the pastor, so goes the people. If pastors today would fall on their faces before the Lord in repentance of their own sin, then perhaps revival would fall upon the church. Well, in chapter 1, Malachi exposes the sin of the Jewish priesthood in much the same manner that Richard Baxter censured the pastors of his day. The priests had defiled the altar of the Lord. They'd made a mockery of the ministry. Their actions were hypocritical and their motives were a stench in the nostrils of God. They defiled the altar by what they brought, by why they came, and by the way they behaved. And the Lord, remember, had moaned at the end of chapter 1, Who is there even among you who would shut the doors so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain? In other words, if you can't serve me sincerely, then don't serve me at all. They would have been better shutting the temple doors. It's interesting, but Malachi chapter 1 was the justification used by the first century Qumran community to reject the temple worship and the Jerusalem priesthood. There were a group of Jews. They were called the Essenes. They were an order of Jews who lived around the time of Christ. They were so disgusted by the priests and by the false worship of the temple, they separated themselves from the Jewish establishment, and they lived communally in the desert just north of the Dead Sea. The Essenes were the caretakers of the Dead Sea Scrolls. When we go to Israel, we pay a visit to that area of the Dead Sea, and we see the caves in the area where the Essenes lived. Some scholars believe that John the Baptist studied among these Essenes. The Qumran community, they saw the compromise of the Sadducees. They saw the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. 
and they rebelled against both. They moved to the desert, and they lived out their faith accordingly. In a way, they shut the doors of the temple. As we know, God is incredibly patient. Even His most vehement threats are often preceded by long periods of forbearance. God prefers not to judge His people. Hey, God prefers the role of blesser, not bouncer. God was patient with these priests. He allowed the message of Malachi to ring in their ears for 500 years, hoping these priests would repent. They never did, though. And in 70 AD, God shut the doors of the temple Himself. He raised up the Romans to destroy the temple and to put an end to its wayward worship. The fire on the altar was finally extinguished as Malachi had forewarned. You know, the preoccupation of pastors today is church growth and new churches. The goal is to expand attendance at all costs, it seems. And I, too, want to see our church grow. Don't misunderstand. But if we compromise our calling just to put buns in the seats, we've done more harm than good. In Malachi, God is more into shutting down churches than He is in starting up churches. It's safe to say that God despises church growth when the pastors and leaders become selfish and insensitive and self-centered. Well, in chapter 2 of his prophecy, Malachi continues to call the priests to humble themselves and to repent. Verse 1, And now, O priests, this commandment is for you. You've heard the Budweiser jingle, this Bud's for you? Well, God has a jingle for the priests of Malachi's day. They're drunk on deception and sin. They're about to get sobered up. God has a jingle of His own. He says, this commandment is for you. If you will not hear, and if you will not take it to heart, to give glory to my name, says the Lord of hosts, I will send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have cursed them already, because you do not take it to heart. God's complaint against the priests was that they didn't give glory to His name. You see, they were too busy trying to make a name for themselves. This is the ultimate sin for a Christian minister. We've been called for one reason and only one reason, and that is to glorify God. When we find ourselves tooting our own horn or justifying ourselves or promoting our own virtues, we reveal how far we've strayed from the path. Our motives have become mixed. Our, our vision has become blurred. Too often we're like the woodpecker, pecking at the trunk of the giant oak tree. Suddenly a bolt of lightning strikes from heaven. It hits the top of the tree. It splinters the tree into pieces. The bird flies off, looks at the dead tree behind him, proudly raises his beak to say, Look what I did. And this is the lesson for us. Our pecking away at the work of God is not what brings the results. It's God's bolts of blessing. It's His works of grace that make the difference. Our pecking only justifies our faithfulness. It's God that brings the fire. And thus, He deserves the glory. I once heard a Bible study by Pastor Chuck from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 
where he spoke about the ministry. The study had a profound impact upon my life. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, Paul says, We have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. In other words, God has placed the most valuable treasure on earth, the gospel, in clay pots. That is, in plain, ordinary people like you and me. So that the attention won't be focused on the container, but on the treasure inside. You and I are ball jars. We're nothing glamorous. We're nothing fancy. And this is why God has chosen to use us. He wants people to look past us and see Jesus in us. In his sermon, Pastor Chuck, he used the illustration of a pitcher that his family used for orange juice. He said he once tried to make tea in this pitcher, but his tea tasted like orange juice. His point was that the vessel shouldn't contaminate its contents. What pours out needs to be pure. You want to taste the contents, not the pitcher. And this is how we should share the gospel. This is how we should do ministry. Never taint it with your own prejudices or personality. We need to convey it as purely as possible so that the glory goes to God, not ourselves. We don't want people to taste the pitcher. We want them to recall the contents, not the container. You see, the priests of Malachi's day, they were doing just the opposite. They were polluting the ministry with their taste. And Malachi warns them that unless they repent, God will curse them. He'll even curse their blessings. You know, the greatest disaster in American history, naval history, was the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. But did you know it could have been averted if the officers had taken heed to the warning? It's now well documented that prior to the attack, American interceptors had broken the secret code used in Japanese diplomatic messages. Surveillance teams were decoding veiled references to an invasion, but they failed to treat the chatter seriously. They didn't consider them serious threats. It's also now known that on the morning of December 7th, Army radar on Pearl Harbor picked up unidentified planes approaching the islands. They sounded the alarm, but an inexperienced officer failed to give the warnings the credence they deserved. The disaster at Pearl Harbor was not due to a lack of information or to a failure to receive adequate warnings. It was the result of certain people who failed to take the message to heart. And this is our problem, isn't it? Seldom are we the victim of not knowing. More often, we're the stooge who knew better, but failed to obey. We need to take God's word to heart, both his words of warning and his words of encouragement, as should the priest in Malachi's day. He goes on and he says, Behold, I will rebuke your descendants and spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your solemn feasts, and one will take you away with it. It gets a little gross here. But the word refuse means excrement, dung, manure. One commentator interprets it as the entrails or the intestines of the sacrifice. You remember the priests were offering God the people's leftovers, the wick and the sickly, the weak and the sickly of the flock. All the while they were complaining 
They were grumbling. They were serving the Lord, but begrudgingly. They called the service of God a weariness. They were making a mockery of ministry, and they were embarrassing God. And here God is about to embarrass them. Reminds me of a man in Washington State. He snuck into a trailer park one night where he attempted to siphon gas from one of the mobile homes. He put his lips to the pipe he thought led to the gas tank, and he began to suck. He soon discovered that he had made an awful mistake. He was sucking from the sewage pipe, not the gas pipe. He ended up with a mouthful of manure. This is God's point here. He says to the priest, you have humiliated me, and now I am going to humiliate you. You see, these priests prided themselves in their cleanliness of properly washing and of wearing these spotless robes. The highest insult, the greatest indignity would be to be paraded around with manure smeared all over their faces. And yet God says that's what he's going to do. Verse 4, then you shall know that I have sent this commandment to you, that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord of hosts. God had appointed the Levites to serve the spiritual needs of the people. The priests, the family of Aaron, were from the tribe of Levi. Malachi's message was to awaken these Levites, to produce repentance in them, and to save them from extinction. He says, my covenant was with him, one of life and peace. And I gave them to him that he might fear me. So he feared me and was reverent before my name. Now here God remembers better days. When the descendants of Levi Levi had faithfully ministered to him. There was a time when the priests were model ministers. And in the next three verses, God shows four marks of a true minister. And the first mark is right here. He fears the Lord. A true minister of the gospel has a healthy fear, has a reverence for God. You know, one of the dangers of ministry is the familiarity that comes with constantly handling the things of God. And familiarity can breed contempt. It can breed a flippancy. Prayer becomes routine. Worship becomes a to-do. Bible study, just more paperwork. The minister needs to maintain a sense of God's holiness and a seriousness about the things of God. The faithful minister fears the Lord and has a gravity about what he does. Verse 6, the law of truth was in his mouth and injustice was not found on his lips. Here were the priests in their faithful days, they spoke the truth. A faithful minister speaks the truth. This too is a mark of the ministry. A true pastor, his goal is to speak the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. He doesn't water it down. He doesn't wrench it or twist it to make it, you know, fit what he wants it to fit. He doesn't distort it. He doesn't make it say less than it does either or more than it does. In an age of lies and half-truths, a faithful minister has truth in his mouth. And then verse 6, he walked with me in peace and equity and turned many away from iniquity. Here's the third mark of a faithful minister. He walks with God. He fears the Lord, he speaks the truth, and he walks with God. You know, in Scripture, it's said of both Enoch and Noah that they walked with God. I can't think of a higher commendation. They walked with God. They had a relationship with God. 
And thus the faithful minister, he loves God more than he loves the ministry. He loves to sit before God and listen to God. He desires to walk with God in peace and in justice. And it's because of the way he lives or he walks. This is what turns many people from sin. See, every minister needs to remember the key to his effectiveness is not just the sermons he preaches, but it's the life that he lives. You know, there were better speakers than Billy Graham. There were more insightful teachers than Billy Graham. But Billy Graham maintained unprecedented influence because of the integrity that he maintained. See, he did more than speak for God. He walked with God. This is the key of an effective minister. And then verse 7, For the lips of a priest should keep knowledge, and people should seek the law from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. A faithful minister fears the Lord, he speaks the truth, he walks with God, and then he teaches the law. He teaches God's people God's word. Notice Malachi's emphasis on the minister's lips, the words that come from his mouth. You know, we, we have a Bible. We all have the written word of God. But often when we read the Bible, it doesn't speak to us as forcefully as when we hear it expounded. As Paul put it in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1, or, I'm sorry, verse 1, chapter 1, verse 21, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save. This is why I don't like these, these churches that, you know, the pastor gets up and he has a little coffee table up here and he's got his Bible on his coffee table and he kind of interacts with the congregation in kind of a dialogue with the congregation. I, I don't think that's, that's what God intended. God said it's by the foolishness of preaching that he intends to save. There is something about the man of God, when he takes the Word of God and he expounds it publicly in the congregation of the saints, it takes on a power, a force that can change lives. In his commentary on Malachi, Martin Luther, he wrote this, these words. He said, this is a passage against those who hold the spoken word in contempt. The lips are the public reservoir of the church. Unless the word is preached publicly, it slips away. The more it is preached, the more firmly it is retained. Reading it is not as profitable as hearing it. For the live voice teaches, exhorts, defends, and resists the power of error. Satan does not care a hoot for the written word of God, but he flees at the speaking of the word. This penetrates hearts and leads back those who stray. Preaching is a channel through which the Holy Spirit is given. He extols the power that comes in public preaching. I think it's true. It's not the same you just staying home and reading your Bible, as good as that might be. But you also, there needs to, you, people, the saints of God need to come together and hear the preaching of God's Word. The true minister is faithful to preach the Word in season and out of season, Paul said to Timothy. In other words, when it's convenient, when it's inconvenient, when it's popular, when it's unpopular, when it's received, even when it's rejected, the minister is not merely a speaker. He is God's messenger. And the faithful pastor 
will teach God's Word to God's people. Hey, we need to fear the Lord. We need to speak the truth. We need to walk with God. And we need to teach His Word. Let's pray for more men who will take up that mantle. But you have departed from the way. Malachi comes back to the priest of his day. You have caused many to stumble at the law. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, I also have made you contemptible and base before all the people, because you have not kept my ways, but have shown partiality in the law. The priest of Malachi's day had doctored the message. They wanted to be more popular than biblical. They catered to itching ears, and they told folks what they wanted to hear, not necessarily what they needed to hear. And since they had deceived publicly, here Malachi promises that they'll be rebuked publicly. To prove to the people the error of their teaching, God will bring them to a public disgrace. He says, have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously with one another by profaning the covenant of the fathers? Now remember the covenant that God struck with Abraham, He made with Abraham's family. It was a national covenant. It was a group covenant. Thus it was vital that they realized that to obey God was to help each other. God would either bless or curse them as a whole, as a family. And did you know this is true of us? Remember, when the Bible talks about the church, it's not the brides of Christ, plural, It is the bride of Christ, singular. When God sees us and looks down on His church, we're one people. We're one nation in Christ. This means that my behavior has a bearing on you and that your behavior has a bearing on me. We are inseparably yoked together in Christ. We share a common destiny. Our lives inevitably affect each other. This is God's way of making us sensitive to one another. If my blessing is dependent on your obedience, then I'm going to see to it that you stay encouraged, that you stay built up in your faith. Hopefully you'll take that same interest in me. We'll together edify and build up each other in our faith. Verse 11, Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem For Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution, which he loves. He has married the daughter of a foreign god. Now notice first, marriage is here mentioned as the institution that God loves. God created marriage. Marriage was God's idea. And after everything that God created, he pronounced it was good. God said, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Here, Malachi is clear. Marriage is not the innovation of man. God created marriage. God loves marriage. He considers it a holy, sacred, special institution. And so should we. And yet the people of Malachi's day defiled the institution of marriage. They marred God's sacred institution in at least two ways. First, they married unbelievers. And second, they engaged in unbiblical divorce. 
Now realize that when God forbid the Jews from marrying other peoples, it had nothing to do with racial prejudice. Read the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, and you'll find in Jesus' genealogy a Canaanite woman named Rahab. You'll also find a Moabite named Ruth. These were Gentiles numbered among Messiah's ancestors. In God's economy, there is nothing wrong with an interracial marriage. And beware if you think so. You remember when Moses' prejudiced sister Miriam objected to him marrying an Ethiopian. What did God do? God struck the old gal with leprosy. That's what he did. Let me repeat. There's nothing wrong with interracial unions. It was not for racial reasons, but for spiritual reasons that God told the Jews to marry only Jews. God didn't want a believer to be married to an unbeliever. You see, God knew the power of marriage, the incredible bond that develops when a man and a woman unite their hearts as one. You know, after you're married, the word together means more than it ever did before. I mean, when you're married, you are together for better or for worse. Spouses rub off on each other. And in the case of marrying an unbeliever, God knew that it would be a small jump from them climbing into bed together and them bowing before an idol together. If his people were marrying unbelievers, they would be led into their sin. In Haggai chapter 3, Haggai chapter 3, there the prophet is asked two questions. Here's the first question. If one carries holy meat, does what it touch become holy? And the answer was no. In other words, holiness is not communicable. You can't catch it from someone else. You can't pass it on to someone else without them willingly receiving it. But then he asks the second question. If one is unclean, touches anything, will it become unclean? And the answer to this was yes. Holiness isn't communicable, but wickedness is. If you run with the wrong crowd long enough, if you run with wicked people, their wickedness will rub off on you. Your holiness won't rub off on them, but their wickedness will rub off on you. And so it is in a marriage. If you marry an unbeliever, there is a far greater chance of you getting drugged down to their level than it is for you to elevate them to yours. At the least, your walk with the Lord will be hindered. You'll, you'll not just go it alone. It won't just be that you'll live out your faith by yourself. No. If you're married to an unbeliever, it'll be like walking with an anvil tied to your ankle. Rather than coming home for encouragement, your home will be a battleground. Olivia Langdon was raised in a Christian home, and when Olivia married, she had a strong, wonderful faith in Christ. In fact, she had high hopes of converting her husband when she married the famous author Mark Twain. In the beginning, he participated with Olivia in the reading of the Scriptures. He even participated in her daily devotions. But it didn't last long. Eventually, he stopped. What's sad, though, is that Olivia also stopped with her devotions. 
Eventually, she threw away her faith. And at the end of her life, just before she died, when Twain could see the agony of her soul as she suffered from her disease, he told her, he said, Livy, if it comforts you to lean on the Christian faith, do so. But Olivia replied, I can't. I haven't any. And not marrying an unbeliever is not just an Old Testament command. For Paul said to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? I could feel a 55-gallon drum with the tears that have been shed in my office by people who failed to obey God and married an unbeliever. They know God hates divorce, and thus they remain married, but they're unable to share their most precious feelings with the person to whom they're supposed to be the closest. The pain of these people throbs, and many have forsaken Christ to ease the tension in their marriage. Hey, if you're married to an unbeliever, don't separate from Christ for eternity just to build a bridge for the moment. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 7, if your unbelieving spouse wants to remain married, don't divorce them. Perhaps your godly example will eventually draw them to Christ. But if you're not married, don't make this mistake. Be faithful and refuse to marry an unbeliever. Verse 12 tells us, May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob, the man who does this, being awake and aware, yet who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. You see what's going on here. This is the ultimate hypocrisy. Here's a man who disobeys God. He goes off, he marries a pagan woman, and then he brings his sacrifice to God as if nothing's wrong. There are couples who've come to me wanting me to officiate their wedding, even though one of them is a believer and one is an unbeliever. You know, they still want to come to God's altar to take a vow that God doesn't approve of. You know, you have no fear of God to suggest such a thing. As a pastor, I'll marry two believers if they're ready for marriage, or even if they think they're ready. I'll also marry two unbelievers, because marriage is for all people, not just Christians. But under no circumstances can I marry a believer and an unbeliever. It's an unequal yoke, and it violates God's Word. And for this, God judged the priests of Malachi's day. I don't want him to judge me. Verse 13. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying, so he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously, Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. The word companion is the same word translated in Genesis 2 verse 24 as joined. It speaks of that bond between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife. When two people leave their former allegiances and cleave to each other. In marriage, there's first a severance from parents and past, followed by a permanence. They are joined together. Yet the Jews in Malachi's day were ignoring the marital vows and the bonding that ensued. 
And they were acting treacherously. The word treacherous is the translation of the Hebrew word Baghdad, which relates to another Hebrew word, Beged, or garment. In ancient Israel, a marriage proposal was made when a man laid his garment over his fiancée. This was how Boaz proposed to Ruth. And the idea of dealing treacherously with your wife is synonymous with breaking your vow. It's, it's like pulling the garment off after you've put it on her. It's not fulfilling the promise that you made to her in the beginning. And realize the reason your spouse married you is because you made them a promise. Are you living up to that promise? In Malachi's day, Jewish men were divorcing their wives. They were breaking their vows. They were pulling the garment off. Then they were coming to God's altar, weeping and praying for a blessing. And they couldn't understand why the heavens were silent. They wondered why. For what reason, they cried out. Well, it didn't take a rocket scientist to figure out the problem. God is not going to bless a person when they're walking in deliberate disobedience to Him. I read an article in the Atlanta newspaper several years ago. It was entitled, Bless This Divorce. Coupled to seal separation in church. It went on to announce that a man and his wife, members of a church in Decatur, wanted to end their marriage with a special church service. The pastor of the church was quoted as saying, Since both are members of this congregation, it seems appropriate to ask God to approve the ending of the marriage. Appropriate to ask God to approve what He's forbidden in His Word? Ridiculous! Ludicrous. This is why I could never marry a believer and an unbeliever. This is why I can never marry two homosexuals. How can you ask God to bless what he has forbidden in his word? Malachi goes on to stress the meaning of marriage. He says, but did he not make them one, having a remnant of the spirit? In other words, there's something spiritual that goes on in a marriage. Realize marriage is more than a domestic arrangement. It's more than a legal contract. It's more than just a social institution. It's certainly more than a romantic involvement. Marriage is first and foremost a spiritual union. The two become one. Ecclesiastes 4 talks about a threefold cord. And this is a marriage. At the altar, God spiritually weaves together two hearts, Two souls, two lives. He even puts his spirit in the loom so that he weaves together not a twofold cord, but a threefold cord. In a marriage, two psyches become spiritually knitted together. But here's the question why does God do this? He tells us why. And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Now, this is very interesting. If we were elaborating on spiritual oneness in marriage, why this is important, we would probably talk about our fulfillment or our happiness or our communication or the significance that marriage brings. But Malachi points to an entirely different reason. He says the reason spiritual union and unity is so important in marriage is that God seeks. Godly offspring. 
The best way to ensure well-adjusted, emotionally healthy, spiritually solid children is to have two parents united and growing together in a loving relationship. And the easiest way to damage those children, to cut them deeply, to produce emotional wounds that will last a lifetime, is to rip apart the children's two parents. I saved an old article. It's dated January 1989. It's entitled, Even Good Divorces Alter Lives of Children. Even Good Divorces Alter Lives of Children. It's a little long, but it's worth reading. A 10-year study of broken families challenges the concept of the good divorce, in which there is little damage to the children. Psychologist Judith Wallerstein tracked 60 couples who were divorcing under the best of circumstances. They were educated and middle class. They were not in psychiatric treatment. And there were no prolonged custody battles. Dr. Wallenstein found that a decade later, many of their children were growing into troubled adults. Dr. Wallerstein's conclusions puncture the illusion that families eventually bounce back after a divorce and resume their lives without any deep scars. When I interviewed kids 10 years later, I expected them to say that their parents' divorce was a long time ago. But I was surprised how vivid and green those memories were for them, she said. I didn't expect a 19-year-old to say, whenever I hear loud talk and yelling at night, I wake up and start to cry. Though it had been thought that girls cope better with divorce, the psychologist observed a sleeper effect among the young women. When these same women, who were doing well in high school, hit ages 18 to 22, we suddenly saw a drop in functioning and a tremendous rise in anxiety over relationships and betrayals, Dr. Wallenstein said. Calling the sleeper effect serious, she said, these young women suffer very, very much. They are experiencing this just at the point of starting their family. After enumerating many more of, of divorce's horrible effects on children, the article concludes, Although divorce is a fact of life today, Dr. Wallenstein said the children of broken homes find no comfort in numbers. Our findings show that all children suffer from divorce no matter how many of their friends have gone through it. Each and every child cries out, Why me? Now, I don't want to heap guilt on those who've been through, through a divorce. It's painful enough. I'm sure some of you were divorced on biblical grounds. But too many marriages end because parents are only thinking about themselves and their own happiness. As one author put it, I maintain that the children have rights too. A right to a mother and a father. A right to a stable home environment a right to an actualized biblical model of what a God-blessed home should be. Divorce deprives them of that and often leads to a self-destructive life pattern. If you're in a miserable marriage and you're looking for a reason to hang in there and make it better, I got one for you. Hey, remember the Lord seeks godly offspring. I want you to think long and hard about your kids. Verse 15 ends, Therefore take heed to your spirit, 
and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. Did you hear that, men? Did you hear that, married men? Tonight, take heed to your spirit and let none of us deal treacherously with the wife of our youth. It's amazing to me how blind we can be to our own problems. Today, when evangelical Christians think of the dangers confronting marriage in our society, we're quick to rail against same-sex marriage. Yet same-sex marriage involves just a tiny percentage of the population. Whereas 40 to 50% of all marriages end in divorce. And they do so without the slightest condemnation from society. The stigma attached to divorce has now vanished. We're worried about same-sex marriage when we ought to be worried about heterosexual marriages that are ending in divorce. The far greater danger to the institution of marriage is the cavalier attitude so many of us have taken to our own marriage. And especially us guys, us husbands. Malachi says, let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. In Israel, the older men were divorcing their wives. I'll tell you what Malachi's talking about. He's talking about a man whose wife works and helps put him through school. She labors alongside him. She helps him build up his career. She endures the lonely nights and the long hours to help the man succeed. Only to find that when her hair starts to gray and her skin starts to sag a bit, her husband dumps her for a newer model. Apparently, this is what was going on in Israel, and it sounds amazingly contemporary. Men dealing treacherously with the wife of their youth. Divorce happens today for many, many reasons, but it's happening too frequently. In 1920, there was one divorce for every seven marriages. In 1960, it was one divorce for every four marriages. Today, it's a little less than one in two. Though divorce has become popular in our world today, God maintains the same attitude He had in Malachi's day. We're told in verse 16, For the Lord God of Israel says that He hates divorce. For it covers one's garments with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. If you're thinking about divorce, you need to pay attention to what God has to say. You've listened to everybody else, but have you thought, maybe it's important that I know what God has to say? And God says He hates divorce. Notice divorce covers one's garments with violence. In other words, it's messy. In other words, it's bloody. Divorce is a violent act. Make no mistake about it. It's the ripping apart of a bond. You ever put super glue on something and then tried to tear it apart? It doesn't just tear at the seam. No, it tears in different places, in places you didn't intend it. When a divorce occurs, the two people and their children, they never tear along the seam. It's never a smooth tear. It's always jagged and rugged. It's not nice and neat and easily repairable. Marriage is too involved, and it's, it's too involved on too many different levels. A husband and a wife and their kids become inseparably wound together and wrapped up in each other. You can't tear them apart without pulling something out and leaving something missing. 
The tear becomes jagged and ragged. It never completely heals. Divorce shatters hearts. It bruises kids. It splinters families. And this is why God hates it so. The Hebrew word in verse 16 translated divorce implies an amputation. The root word means a cutting off. Reminds me of C.S. Lewis's quote about divorce. He says, Christians all regard divorce as something like cutting up a living body, as kind of a surgical procedure. Some think that the operation is so violent that it cannot be done at all. Others admit that it is a desperate remedy in extreme cases. They are all agreed that it is more like having your legs cut off than it is like dissolving a business partnership. And this is why God hates it so. Numerous studies have shown that when divorcees are interviewed years later and they're asked if they had it to do over again, would they still get divorced? The overwhelming response is no. They would have hung in there. They would have worked it out. I know marriage can be difficult. I know it can be, at times it can seem impossible. I read of a woman who ran into the police station in Minot, North Dakota. She asked the police to protect her from her husband. Well, the police were really busy at the moment, and they didn't notice when the woman had walked back outside. They found her, though, in the parking lot, facing off with her husband. The two spouses had chainsaws aimed at each other. I mean, <laughs> marriage can get tough. Some couples assume that rebuilding their marriage will be too tough. It'll be too rough. They should realize the pain of rebuilding won't be near as severe as the pain of divorce. Did you hear that? The pain of rebuilding is seldom as deep, as hurtful as the pain of divorce. People think of divorce as starting over. That's not true. It's not that simple. It's starting over with scars and wounds and nagging feelings of failure and emotionally impaired kids and a broken covenant with God. Starting over isn't, isn't easy either. In World War II, Winston Churchill, he said to the British people, wars are not won by evacuation and neither are good marriages. Hang in there, guys. Hang in there. I would rather be in God's will and in a less than perfect marriage than to step outside of God's will for a promise that will never materialize. Being outside the will of God is far worse than being in a less than perfect marriage. Remember, God hates divorce. Chapter 2 ends, You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, In what way have we wearied Him? They were grieving God and they didn't even know how. God answers them, In that you say, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or, where is the God of justice? These Jews were grieving the heart of God by questioning his justice. Where is God? Why doesn't he judge? Where is the God of justice? They were saying that, or they were misinterpreting his mercy. Because God was being patient, because God was offering them a chance to repent, 
they concluded he approved of their behavior. Neither was true. And God is going to respond to this last question, where is the God of justice in chapters 3 and 4? 